So Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, where we're told, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John the Alexander and all who were of the high priest family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed 
through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In his 1983 Templeton Prize address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered this summary explanation for why all the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened, he said. This answer, writes Rod Dreher, is also a valid explanation for the crisis enveloping the West today, including the widespread falling away from faith, the disintegration of the family, a loss of communal purpose, or erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life. Dreyer writes, because men have forgotten God, they have also forgotten man. That's why all this has happened. Well, those were the opening words of Rod Dreyer's foreword to Dr. Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where, among many other things, Dr. Truman seeks to answer the question, how have we arrived at a time in history when we could face real danger for saying, this is a man and this is a woman? And sometimes when Truman is asked to defend or summarize the thesis of the book, he'll say, if 200 years ago someone went to their doctor and said, I am a woman trapped inside a man's body, the medical professional would assume that the patient has a problem with his mind. But today, the assumption is that the problem is with the body. And that the body needs to be conformed to the person's mind. And Truman's book is answering the question, how or why has that change come about in the psyche of the average person in 21st century Britain and the world? Now, please hear me. If for whatever reason this is a sensitive, a personal topic or subject for you, please understand that I, we as a church, are not ridiculing, we are not despising you at all in, or in any way, but it is my conviction that there is no knife that can go deep enough and there is no operation successful enough to adequately address the dysphoria being experienced in such a person and in such a mind. And that is because the problem isn't physical or biological, the problem is theological. The problem is theological, and such an experience is one of billions of symptoms that arise when we, the creation, forget God, the creator. Uh, The symptom might take the form of political problems or societal or national or biological, mental or ethical difficulties, but the root cause and the chief culprit is always theological. Real stability comes through knowing God. 
through knowing God, such that even when collapse surrounds us on every side, those who know their God are able to stand firm. This is exactly what Steve Taylor was encouraging us with only a few Sunday nights ago from Psalm 46, where the psalmist talks of the earth giving way and mountains being moved and waters roaring and foaming and mountains trembling at its swelling. But then the Most High saying, be still and know that I am God. And we resume our series in the book of Acts this morning. From a human, from an earthly perspective, the church was facing collapse. Now, the numbers were increasing. And the number of converts were growing. But in just the last passage, the chief priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon Peter and John, greatly annoyed. Because these chief apostolic spokesmen were preaching And teaching the people in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. And on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes, that was the Sanhedrin, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And they set them in their midst and they questioned them and threatened them and warned them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. But despite the threats of men, the church of God stood. How? Our passage this morning gives us The answer, because the point of our passage is God is sovereign over persecution. God is sovereign over persecution, and that's who God is. And because the church of God knew the character of God, they could stand for the cause of God in the world, no matter, regardless of the cost. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you are on the brink of a a personal collapse. There are unknowns in your life. Your, your health isn't what it used to be. And you, maybe you're starting a new job or you'll find yourself in an unfamiliar place and, and you're filled with questions. You're facing a trial that no one knows anything about, a trial that you feel like you couldn't share with even your closest friends and brothers and sisters in the faith. Struggles in the family that no one knows anything about. The call on your life is to know your God. And so let's look first at who the church prayed to. Now in verses 23 to 28 that Mark read for us, the church prays to the God of creation, to the God of revelation, and to the God of predestination. The God of creation. Look at verse 23. It says, when they were released, they, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they prayed to the God of Revelation, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they prayed to the God of predestination. Verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, believe it or not, those words are only the introduction to the prayer request in verses 29 and 30. So think about that. Six verses of introduction, only two verses of petition. Uh, Were the church not paying attention when Jesus prescribed simplicity in prayer? Uh, You remember, he he said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. But these were no empty words. Because amid persecution, you and I need to know who we're praying to. We're living at a time when a a disproportionate number of people are comfortable, affluent, well-dressed, well-supplied. And prayer isn't so much what people do out of desperation. Prayer is what people do to improve their mental health. And so we don't call it prayer. We call it meditation. And, and when it comes to medica- uh, meditation, so long as it settles the mind, so long as it calms the soul, so long as it comforts the psyche, any God will do. The God that you're praying to, whoever it is, he is, or she is, is immaterial. So long as it makes you feel better, it doesn't matter. But when the bullets of persecution are whizzing past your ears... And when the darts of the evil one are raining on your head. And when the most powerful religious establishment in the world is threatening you face to face and eye to eye. You had better know whom you are praying to. You better know that your God is the God of creation. You remember when the southern kingdom of Judah is facing annihilation. And Hezekiah prays. And what does Hezekiah pray, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim? You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Why is that relevant? Because the creator of the cosmos is the controller of the cosmos. The creator of the world is over all the affairs of the world. And it's why R.C. Sproul said, If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, God is not God. But there is no maverick molecule in the universe because God is working all molecules and atoms together, including uranium, to the praise of his glorious grace. And friends, you need to know that you're praying to the God of revelation. The God who through the mouth of David inspired Psalm 2 by the Holy Spirit, object, uh, opening an objective window into divine reality, revealing to every believer what was really going on behind the rage of the Gentiles and the nations and the rulers of the world. None less than rage against David, rage against Jesus, and rage against God. And we pray to a God who has disclosed heaven's perspective on earthly suffering as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, you need to know that you're praying to the God of predestination, to the God who doesn't drive an ambulance. 
who doesn't drive a police car in response to evil and suffering, but who instead predestined the most evil deed ever committed in the history of the world in order to gain maximum glory for himself throughout the universe. And practically, what does all this mean for us? Well, friends, it means this. Since God is sovereign over all, prayer is always the best recourse. Can I say that again? Since God is sovereign over all, prayer is always the best recourse. There is never a bad time to pray because God is sovereign from every angle, from every perspective, from every era in history. And so in the least condemning way possible, And in the most pastoral way possible, please can I ask you, how is your prayer life going? And if you would say, well, Hugh, it's not going as I want it to be, then you can take heart and you could be encouraged because that is every Christian in the history of the world. If you want to humble a Christian, ask him about his prayer life. All of our minds wander. All of our hearts are distracted. And they are not as united as we would have them be. But my conviction, friends, is this. The bigger our God, the deeper our prayer life will be. The bigger our God, the the deeper our prayer life will be. Or we could say the depth of our prayer lives is determined by the size of our God. Or I could say it like this. Puny gods don't make great men of prayer. Weak gods don't make strong women of prayer. So the question is, how can we grow in our grasp of the size of God? And here's the answer from Acts chapter 4, by meditating on the works of God. Think about that. The church gathers together on the back of an instance of persecution. And what do they say in summary? Well, they say, you made, you spoke, You decided. You made, you spoke, you decided. Wasn't that God's strategy with Job? Job complains, having experienced unspeakable tragedy, and God comes to him and says to him, Job, where were you when I? And then reels off chapter after chapter after chapter of deeds. Wasn't this God's strategy with the idolatrous people of Isaiah's day when we read in Isaiah 41, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations forth from the beginning, I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Friend, if you're afraid of thinking big thoughts about God, you will fear the wrong things. And so I want to encourage you, resist that voice that is saying to you right now as I preach, If I think big thoughts about God, I will feel like God has forgotten me. I will feel like God is overlooking me. 
I'll feel like I'm not significant to God. I need a God who is my size so that he can care about my problems. Friends, the opposite is true. The bigger your vision of God, the more amazed you will be at his care for you. Who is one of the uh, most well-known big preachers in the world? Jonathan Edwards. And in 1758, he was away from home for a few weeks to take up the role of president of Princeton College. And while being treated for smallpox, the medication used to cure him turned out to be the medication that killed him. And his wife wrote a letter to their daughter, Esther. And this is what she wrote, quote, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, Jonathan Edwards, so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. You are your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. And if you will delight yourselves in the fear of God via the deeds of God, you will have nothing to fear because you will fear only him. That was who the church prayed to. Second, we're going to see what the church prayed for. Friends, look with me at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did the church pray for? For the sovereign Lord to look, to grant, and to heal. To look, to grant, and to heal. Only now, with their vision of God clarified and themselves humbled before him, were they ready to pray at last. John Stott writes. And again, they prayed for the sovereign Lord to look. Amazingly, it wasn't Lord stop their threats. It wasn't turn their threats on their own head. It was simply look upon their threats. A look from a sovereign God and a good God was all they needed to feel assured. And they prayed for the sovereign Lord to grant. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Jesus had said to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he'd said to them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecuted you, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And with those words ringing in their ears, they asked for courage from God. And they prayed to God to heal, for God to authenticate, to validate, to vindicate the preaching of the gospel with divine power as they ministered in Jesus' name. Someone wrote this, The demand is not now for miracles of vengeance or destruction, such as fire from heaven, but for miracles of mercy. And God answered immediately. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now friends, what should stun us about verses like these ones is that all of their requests were for the expansion of God's kingdom, not for the preservation of their lives. Isn't that amazing? Warren Wearsby wrote, they didn't even ask for protection. They asked for power. And I made the point last week, didn't I, that as those who live in a post-Christian culture, maybe we should be expecting the persecution that came to the church in a pre-Christian culture. Well, imagine for a moment if Mark and I were arrested for our preaching of the gospel. We were threatened. We were told to preach no longer in the name of Jesus. And you all gathered to pray. My guess is you would be praying for protection, removal of those who's arrested us, a dismantling of the powers that be. Maybe not. Maybe you'd be praying that they would lose the key and me and Mark would be put away there for as long as possible. But I bet some of you, two or three of you, would be praying for protection and for our release. And that wouldn't be wrong. There are inevitably dozens of passages in the New Testament about protection. But here, There is a single eye to the expansion of the kingdom of God, even in view of the persecution of man. Why? Because such boldness can only be explained with reference to Jesus. That's why. Didn't we read last week, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That was the only explanation. And the deepest desire of every Christian is to have the savor of Christ all over them. In good times and in bad in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, over preservation, over popularity, over the praise of man is the glory of Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And some of you are hearing me and you're saying, Hugh, I am a million miles away from that kind of concern. I'm more concerned about me. My heart is nowhere near that undivided. I'm just here because someone dragged me here this morning. And when I don't read my Bible, I don't miss it. And when I don't pray, I don't miss the presence of God. Prayer is often the last thing I do. It's not the first thing I do. And sometimes I feel more at home in the world than I do in the church. 
And the people in the world would be surprised that I even attend church when I'm here. But maybe this morning you're waking up to the fact that that is a problem. And you want to change, but you feel like you just can't. Friend, let me say this, just as the boldness, just as this kind of boldness can only be explained with reference to Jesus, so it can only be obtained by looking to Jesus. It can only be explained with reference to Jesus. It can only be obtained by looking to Jesus. It, it, it cannot be obtained by works. It cannot be obtained by just doing the right things, by inner resolve, by trying to work up something within you. Friend, you must look to the boldness giver. Look to the one who left everything for us until you are freed to lose everything for him. And you will not carry the cross until you are grateful that he carried your cross. The boldness that can only be explained with reference to Jesus is the same boldness that is given freely by Jesus. And the more you know of his selfless love for you, the more you will experience the boldness needed to live for him and for his kingdom to grow in the world. In a book on the cross, one author wrote this, in World War II, Ernest Gordon was a British captive in a Japanese prison camp by the River Kwai in Burma, where the prisoners of war were, first, uh, were forced to build a railroad of death for transporting Japanese troops to the battlefront. They were tortured, starved, and worked to the point of exhaustion. Gordon survived the horrors of that experience and wrote about it in a monumental work, Through the Valley of the Kwai, published in 1962 and later made into the film to end all wars. And he described one occasion when, at the end of a workday, the tools were being counted before the prisoners returned to their quarters. A guard declared that a shovel was missing. And he began to rant and rave, demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it. Working himself into a paranoid fury, he ordered whoever was guilty to step forward and take his punishment. No one did. All die, the guard shrieked. All die. He cocked his rifle and aimed it at the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward. Standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. The Japanese guard at once clubbed the prisoner to death. As his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels in the tool shed were recounted only to reveal that there was no missing shovel. Imagine if you can the effect upon his fellow prisoners of this man's substitutionary sacrifice for them. It is a profound and moving story of sacrifice and heroism, yet it falls short of being an adequate illustration of substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ because there is no adequate illustration. Unlike the situation of those prisoners staring into the cocked and loaded gun of a deranged guard, you and I do not face death from a fellow sinner. What we face is the righteous threat of, a fu of furious wrath from a holy 
God. That is the threat faced by all who have gone astray, by each one who has turned to his own way. In our case, the shovel is missing. There is, in fact, a great deal more that's missing. We are indeed guilty of sin and deserving punishment. But the innocent one, the holy one of God, stepped forward to die for the rest of us. And on that cross, the servant suffered for sinners like you and me because of sinners like you and me. And as the substitute for sinners like you and me. And in view of such a savior, how can we not respond with lives of holy abandon, single resolve? Helen Rosevere, when reflecting on her suffering as a missionary, wrote, am I prepared for the pain which may at times seem like sacrifice in order to be made a tool in his service, my willingness will be a measure of the sincerity of my desire to express my heartfelt gratitude to him for his so great salvation. Can I see such minor sacrifices in light of the great sacrifice of Calvary where Christ gave all for me? And friends, if Christ gave all for us, can we not now respond by giving our all for him? Regardless of the cost, no matter the trials, irrespective of the dangers, to give it all for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. May God bless you.